Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and you can find us on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're across uh, all sorts of podcast players, every single one, and you can even find us on YouTube. Um, We are very pleased to welcome Asha Palmer to today's show. Um, Asha is um, very high profile in the world of ethics and compliance Um, in more recent times as a consultant, uh, but she's also worked in-house at United States uh, and uh, Emirati companies uh, previously, uh, which actually has some parallel and alignment uh, with a little bit of my life there, so I'm I'm going to prod you on some of your experience out in the Middle East. So welcome, welcome, Asha. Please tell us about your working history. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for having me. Um, and I'm not sure I've been labeled high profile before, so I'll take that. Um, yeah, just a little bit about my working history. I am a lawyer by background. I went to NYU Law School and then did the traditional path of going into the law firm, doing litigation, doing some internal policy work there as well for companies uh, to look into their internal investigation process, et cetera. I then went to the Department of Justice just for a few uh, months to see what it was like to be part of um, the regulated bodies that really make sure companies within the U.S. are doing the right thing. And so I I worked on SCA cases during my time at the DOJ and really saw from a government perspective how um, they looked at ethics and compliance programs. I then moved to the Middle East um, where I was able to teach a class on business ethics, which I know we'll talk about here but also work for an Emirati company, Mubadala, which is a sovereign wealth fund. And there I was able to uh, establish, enhance, and optimize uh, ethics and compliance programs across the world. Mubadala's portfolio extends from um, as far west as Canada and as far east as um, Indonesia. And so many of the portfolio companies at Mubadala have varying levels of maturity in their ethics and compliance program. And so we were really able to partner with them to be able to develop um, their programs, which led when I moved back to the U.S. naturally into the consulting business that I started, Global Compliance Consulting. And there I am able to do very similar things, establish, enhance, optimize wherever Uh, my clients are. I always say I meet my clients where they are, which is so important because as we think about the maturity of the ethics and compliance function, it's important that we start where we are and continue to build on that. Um, So -hmm. that's where I am now. And and in the future, I'm actually looking at um, joining in-house conversant to really enhance technology in the space of ethics and compliance where I believe it will make 
scalable and sustainable difference in our profession and in the world. Wonderful. Excellent. Um, and so you, you touched on the business ethics um, teaching in Dubai. Um, I'm curious to know, and I'm, I'm thinking back to um, when I was a student in New Zealand, we didn't have um, compliance courses. And I, I don't believe that's changed. And of course, mm-hmm. the United States has seen um, an introduction um, in the last several years of compliance being offered as a subject uh, within certain universities. How popular were compliance courses in the Middle East? Yeah, Mary, popular is an interesting word. Um, I think forced is probably the better word. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, okay. so, so the business ethics course that I taught was actually part of the undergrad business curriculum. And so it was one of the foundational required courses for any mm-hmm. person getting their business degree. So you you know what it's like to have a required course, right? It's dreaded, it's mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> anticipated. It, but you know what was very interesting was when I got the curriculum for the course as to what teachers had taught in the past to sort of figure out what my curriculum would be, I understood why people didn't like it. Um, it was um. very theory-based. It was mm-hmm. very um, hard to relate to. And, you know, we're talking 20, 21-year-olds. And so you, you can talk to them about theory and, they, and we can debate it, but they wanted to feel it, to touch it, to make it practical. And so I really had to redo the entire course. And I influxed it with companies that they cared about. So we talked about Starbucks. We talked about um, Uber. We talked about Louis Vuitton. We talked about Porsche. We talked about uh, ethics cases in the lens of things that mattered to the population I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really reflect on that so many times, even today, because what I was able to do was see that people weren't understanding it or getting it and weren't relating to it. So then they weren't applying it. And to me, that was the biggest miss because we need business majors, the leaders of corporations, the leaders of countries, the leaders to really understand it if they're going to apply it. And I, I apply that to all my training and engagement uh, throughout my, the rest of my career where we really need to make it so people can touch it and feel it so that they apply it. Mm, perfect, perfect. And, and what we should be doing as compliance officers all of the time um, and really interesting seeing it through the, the, um, the perspective of someone who's teaching the potential compliance officers of, of the future and how to pique their interest and something that I think a lot of us who do it now are supernaturally excited in. Um, but as you say, there is something about almost the dread of, of something that's forced upon you rather than making the decision your, yourself to, to join the class. So I, I love that. And um, I have no doubt that um, your um, ability to make it more engaging really made a difference to the, the satisfaction of, of the learners. And yeah. then, mm, sorry. You know, I see us as teachers. I see... Mm-hmm compliance professionals as teachers and what what you want to get out of teaching is for someone to have learned something they can apply in their life. Absolutely and I think there's a lot of teaching going on um, you know beyond the the education that we do in our compliance roles there are so many um, 
you know, again, high profile, um, influential people like yourself who are really role models and mentors for, for others in the industry, the, the staff members around them. And so I, I think it's great to, to consider ourselves as always being a teacher in some kind of a way and how we can best relate to the varied audiences that we have in front of us, whether it is the business, um, whether you are an adjunct professor um, or whether it's the mentee that you've been paired up with. That's right. And adapt, adapt, mm-hmm. adapt, adapt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then one that I, I have, a, um, I guess, a special interest in um, I wanted to ask you about. So for me, um, back in, uh, actually, it's almost um, exactly a year um, that I quite hastily packed my bags on a whim. I packed up my apartment in New Zealand uh, and moved to Singapore. And I'd, I'd never been to, to Singapore before. I didn't know what language was spoken. I didn't know the ethnicity of the people. I knew nothing. Um, and my plan was <laughs> to, to go, uh, and actually similar when I moved to Dubai um, a few years later, um, I, I went off and I had in mind, okay, this would be fantastic. I'll do a little two-year stint. Anyway, it's 10 years later. I've, I've not <laughs> returned to New Zealand and yes. I've since been to um, Dubai, back to Asia, ping-ponged around Asia. I uh, found myself in the United States, um, possibly against all odds, really. It's really freaking hard to, to get a job here as a foreigner. Um, and so, the, you know, I always ask myself whenever I go home to New Zealand, am I ready? Is it time yet? And as lovely as the time is that I spend with my family, catching up with friends, um, eating the foods that uh, you can't get anywhere else, I always, well, until, you know, to, to date, uh, the, the feeling has always been, nope, I'm, I'm not ready yet. So I'm curious, uh, very personally, you know, after spending four years overseas as an expat, you returned to the U.S. in 2018. How did you know that it was time to return home? Um, I blame my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably wouldn't have moved home. Um, Mm -hmm. No, you know, we enjoyed our time in the Middle East so much more than we ever could have imagined. It offered us Mm -hmm. so much in life. Um, You know, the one thing that the rest of the world gets that we don't get very well here in the United States is the ability to unplug and to, Mm -hmm. you know, go on vacation and to relax. So I really feel like our time in the Middle East gave us some years back on our life. Um, It also took it away because in those four years I was there, I managed to have three children. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it Mm -hmm. took just as many away as as it (laughs) gave me. Um, But, but no, I mean, I think, you know, for us, we learned a lot about the global world and society that we live Mm -hmm. in and we had gotten those lessons and that value. um, And we needed to begin to, to bring it back to the United States in a way that was impactful. And so we moved over to the Middle East to learn and to grow and to learn about different cultures and religions and customs and norms so that it could then feed into our lives. And Mm -hmm. with that, Mm -hmm. we had an obligation to bring it back to the U.S. And I am reminded every time when people say, 
how was it to live in the Middle East? And I'm not sure the intent of every person who asked that question, uh, many of which who haven't traveled there, but it's mm-hmm. an education opportunity to open people's mindsets, to open their hearts um, to the wonderful experience that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and to be honest with you, if it wasn't a 14-hour flight um, to get home with three kids under the age of five, mm-hmm. then I might still be there today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a really interesting observation, your um, thoughts on the unplugging. I would say that, you know, if, if I ever had a chance to speak to someone who had a great deal of power over the... Um, uh, the standard of living in the United States, my feedback would be um, this is the country where people take the least vacation time, mm-hmm. where people are given the least holidays um, out of, and by holidays, um, I, I'm using, I, I mean the term vacation time or what you guys call PTO. Um, yes. Out of any country I've ever lived in, by a country mile. And it scares me from the perspective of a foreigner because I worry about collectively as a nation, the levels of burnout that have to be occurring in the United States and how much more fortunate I feel when um, I've thought back to the times when I've been able to, to take more rest than um, is afforded here. And, and I feel relieved that, oh, at least, you know, one day I'll, I'll, I'll be able to have my vacation time back and everything. And I think, but not everyone else will. And so if, if you're listening to this and you're feeling the same, um, it, it's totally fine to, to take a step back um, and to pause. And I have a, a friend, um, uh, Danielle North, who is um, a coach in the United Kingdom. And she has a really nice way of um, talking about what she calls um, pausing, which is essentially in life, Um, if you don't pause when you need to, your life will do it for you. And I very, very strongly believe that. So, um, yes, I mean, that's such a powerful message during COVID-19 too as well. Right. Right. And and I I think, I think if we even put our professional spin on that, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that the financial sector has learned, right. Financial services sector Mm -hmm. has learned is forcing people to take a break Mm -hmm. is actually a really good thing for compliance because it makes someone step into their role. Mm -hmm. It makes people see whether things are awry or whether there's something, you know, shaky going on within that person's domain. And so it actually is not only really good for the individual, but it's actually really good for the company. Yeah, that's a a great point. And um, for anyone who missed it, um, we have an episode Um, that really touches on this point nicely in terms of how it is essentially a financial control um, to to have have someone step in um, while someone else who is in charge of purse strings and decision-making of where money goes um, or at least control um, to be able to, to do their job for a while. So, um, I, I hope, I hope that um, as time goes on, I don't mean to apply my own, cultural um, expectations that I've experienced um, and say that they're better than, than what happens in the US. I just think that um, everyone is, is, is worthy of, of, of taking a break and having some, some downtime. Um, and I just think that Team America works so hard. <laughs> so, you know, so hard. 
You know, Mary, that reminds me. Um, every time when I talked about my career earlier and when I transitioned, um, so when I transitioned from the law firm to DOJ, mm-hmm. you know, the interesting thing, you know, at the end of, of your service with the company, they cash out your PTO, right? Or they cash mm-hmm. out your vacation. Mm-hmm. And it was always so funny. I will tell you this. I never cashed out any PTO. I always mm-hmm. took my vacation. <laughs> I I think you need it and you get, we give our company so much. We need yeah. to take some, something for ourselves as well, as far as refresh, reframe, re-energize. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And then on, on that point, you, you mentioned that that was something that you found as a real positive. Um, was that the most fulfilling part for you about being an expat or was there something else that stands out? You know, the travel was great. Um, Mm -hmm. The most fulfilling part for me, though, was getting to know um, people that I would have never gotten to know had Mm -hmm. I stayed in my comfort zone. Yeah. And, And just the realization that people are people and we are all so much more similar than we are different. It's mm-hmm. just something sometimes you have to see and experience um, to really understand. And so mm-hmm. that was the most fulfilling part for me. Mm-hmm. I can certainly echo that that sentiment, I think, for, for me as well. All right. So moving to um, changing gears to a more technical um, compliance angle here. Um, I, I know that as a specialist in risk assessments and compliance program assessments, you're very um, strong in this area. Will you please share with our audience the difference between the two and the most common mistakes companies make when executing these initiatives? Yeah, I am very passionate about risk assessments um, and program assessments, as you said, actually just taught a course uh, with Amy Sandu at University of Colorado on risk assessments and how that ties into program assessments. And so how I really see the difference of the two, uh, they are definitely dependent on each other, but a risk assessment should be just one part of an ethics and compliance program. Mm -hmm. And so while your program first, and and actually it's a foundational element, right? And so your program should first know what the company risks are, know what the geographic risks are, know what the people risks and and the risk exposure is. And then you should really build your compliance program and its touch points based on the risks. And I think the best way I frame it is looking at um, DOJ guidelines. And what's interesting is a lot of my clients are not U.S.-based companies. And so I do have to explain why should we care about what the DOJ says is an effective um, compliance program. I mean, there's a few reasons we should care. One, because jurisdictional reach Mm-hmm. Um, it is a bit ambiguous. Um, and I always say if the DOJ wants you, they can find you. I agree. Um, <laughs> yep. I say it all the time. If they want to capture you, they will. <laughs> they, they will expand. They will, they will find your toe in the sand somewhere and they will yeah. find you. Um, but, and, and so that jurisdictional connection and pull is expanding um, day by day. But two, it is the most detailed guide guidelines for a compliance program 
that have really ever been written, the most comprehensive. And so regardless of whether you are held accountable to them, if you're in front of the DOJ, it's just a good guide to say, what should my program have? What matters for my program and where should I allocate my resources? One of those areas in your program is the risk assessment. And so uh, distinguishing those two is very important. But your entire program, once you have your risk assessment, know what your risks are, know which ones are high, medium, low, however you choose to classify those, then you will need to solve the problem. So if you have a high risk, what are you going to do about it, right? And the thing that um, risk assessments for me are so crucial is because they help you assess your controls, right? And they help you assess your program as well, right? Mm -hmm. So if I have a high risk area and my only control is my code of conduct test that I give every year, I could have Mm -hmm. an over-reliance on that control. Right. So maybe I need to look at some of the other areas of my program and, and supplement those. So policies, trainings, engagements, you know, communications, uh, controls that are not people-based, but process-based. And so it really gives you a chance to uh, thoughtfully deploy the resources of your program in a way that makes sense. Excellent. Excellent. That's, um, that's fantastic. And I, I can see why you are a, a teacher in this area. <laughs> I'll have to, to see if I can um, get get Amy's perspective on the, the show as well. Yeah, and you know, the important thing, uh, you asked, you know, what is the most common mistakes companies make when, you know, either doing a risk assessment mm-hmm. or a program assessment? And I think, you know, it's overthinking it, right? Mm. And it's, it, it, it's really, you, you have to start somewhere, right? You have mm-hmm. to look at what's working and what's not in your program, You have to know your risks because if you're just saying, I'm going to train every year on conflicts of interest or I'm going to train every year on antitrust and you don't have an antitrust risk, that doesn't necessarily make sense. And I think what we can get so much from the DOJ guidance on what our compliance program should look like, they want to make sure it's thoughtful, right? They want to Mm -hmm. make sure you thought about what you were doing and didn't just say, okay, I need a training on this. I need a training on this. Check, 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 check. And Mm -hmm. that is the evolution beyond it. Just someone told me I need to do this versus Mm -hmm. thinking about how to actually change behavior and build accountability within your program in a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just documenting it, right? Like if you don't think that you have a specific risk or that it's negligible to the point where you don't have to train on it on an annual basis as long as you're showing the the process that you went through to determine that risk assessment and you're documenting um why it is that you've decided not to act on it no one's asking you to do everything under the sun it just needs to be proportionate and risk-based yep and you know i give the example when i sort of socialize these risk assessments to you know different departments is like you know i use an analogy of my kids right and you know, they, they take something out of the, the cabinet they're not supposed to take. I want to know why they took it. Mm-hmm. You know, why did you think you wouldn't, why did you think that was a good idea? Why did you not choose to do something differently? And so mm-hmm. that's, that's what the DOJ is going to do. They just want to know why you did yeah. what you did. They yeah. don't, they, it's not necessarily a critique that you didn't do it. The question is, why did you choose to do this and not something else? And as long as you were able to answer that question, 
and show you have thoughtfully um, managed your risk, then the DOJ will give you some credit for that for sure. Yeah, I always figure if, um, you know, you, you pluck any other reasonable compliance officer and they can say, yep, that, that seems like a logical step to have taken or a decision to have made in that process, I feel a lot more comfortable about any decision that I make about, you know, what, what to do or what to omit in, in the program. For sure, for sure. I mean, you know, no one in compliance ever said I have enough resources. So mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't think that's the expectation, right? It's just mm-hmm. how you use and deploy your resources, again, in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah, I have too much money is never, nope. never <laughs> on the top of our list of complaints. <laughs> never, never. One of your focus areas is changing culture and conduct, which is um, a a topic close to my heart as well. Um, What are your change management tips for the compliance officer of today who, for the most part, has established themselves as a true business partner, not that naughty policeman who always says no, Um, (laughs) but you still need to confront shaping ethical behaviour and tone in a company, which I always find a little harder to control because, you know, I can be um, as awesome as I can in order to make people eventually go, oh, I wanted to hate you, but actually you're, you're an all right person. But when it comes yeah. to shaping, you know, the, the ethical behavior of uh, an entity, and I guess the bigger, the harder, um, what are your tips for that? Yeah, you know, um, it's so interesting because to me, culture and conduct, depending on where you are, Mm-hmm. can be the same thing or they can be very different. And mm-hmm. so I think yep. the first the first step is assessing whether your culture, whether your the conduct of people within the organization is reflective of culture and whether culture dictates conduct. And so I think understanding the in, interplay between those is the first step. And you know, mm-hmm. I was very I have been very successful with in-house and with my clients in doing different training, thinking about training and engagement differently Mm -hmm. and more progressively. Because really, when you get in front of the, the idea of we keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results, um, the actual definition of insanity yeah, officially then mm-hmm. <laughs> you then you change the way you look at things and so you know if if you are training or if you are engaging or if you are talking to your management and it's not getting through and it's not changing people's conduct and it's not enhancing the culture then what can you do differently and that's why I think it's so important for compliance officers to connect with each other I am a 100% advocate, even with my clients who are compliance officers. I connect them with other compliance officers because there's no reason that we should be reinventing the wheel mm-hmm. as, to what, as to what works. If mm-hmm. we are doing the same thing over and over again, we're not getting different results, we ch- and we can't think about a way to change our interaction with the company, let's see what other people are doing. Let's talk to other people about how they do it because that's when you really start thinking differently and thinking outside of the box. And then you will see change. The other, mm-hmm. thing, I, the other thing I always say also is that 
which means more work. <laughs> Let me stop mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And so I know that goes against everything I just said with the resourcing challenges. I know that we all have, but you know, how can we make things different for different audiences? Um, and so I think that's important. And the last thing I will say is, you know, one of the pivotal moments for me in my compliance career was when I learned that I, as a compliance officer, own too much of the compliance risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I was owning it. I was advocating for it. I was. And so I flipped it to empower others, whether it was our C-suite, whether it's our managers. We did a, a, an ethical leadership guide to really empower the leaders to own some of these risks. Because mm-hmm. the reality is, is we're the second line of defense. Mm-hmm. If, That's the right. fir- if the first line is not properly tooled, then we will end up taking on way more than we can bear. And so I Mm. think really changing culture and conduct really means empowering that first line of defense to care about the things to number one, to understand the things that we care about. Mm -hmm. Number two, to flag those things that we care about so that we can then partner with them to resolve them. That's Mm -hmm. what we should be doing in our second line and not really fighting those battles ourselves. That's great. And it it reminds me, you know, what you said there about compliance, owning a lot of the risk. Part of that is getting into everyone's mindset, like we all own compliance. And I'm thinking of a a really powerful activity that uh, my former boss, Mark Stanley, who um, was one of our early guests on the show, Mark was leading a session at our Asia-Pacific conference um, several years ago, and he wanted to introduce his team. And so one by one, he'd, he'd get us all to, to stand up. And there were maybe 12 of us at that point in time. And then he asked everyone to stand. And um, we must have numbered in the thousands, I think, in terms of the numbers of of staff. And he just simply said, you are the compliance department. Um, And I felt that was a very powerful visual Mm -hmm. for everyone to have actively participated and really understood that, yeah, you have the... um, the ambassadors, the liaisons, um, yep. the, the the protectors, as Lisa Beth Lentini says, or sorry, the guardians is, is what she says. Um, but actually protectors is not a bad word either, right? Um, right? The, not, the, the, the revenue protection uh, <laughs> department. Um, and yet everyone should, should have a hand in it. So um, if you're looking for something new to do in uh, your conference, I, I recommend um, giving yeah. it a try. A great it's, it's so important, you know, because we, what we're subject matter experts in is mm-hmm. compliance, ethics, risk, mm-hmm. right? How that is manifested in the business, mm-hmm. the subject matters, subject matter experts are the people who are doing it. Um, mm-hmm. Barbara Bowler at Compliance Week does this great mm-hmm. um, exercise in one of her classes where she has half the class um, decorate cupcakes and the other mm-hmm. cl- half of the class write a policy for how to decorate cupcakes. Mm-hmm. And she will tell you time and time again, the two never talk to each other. Mm-hmm. That 
is always going to be a problem because the, the procedure and the policy isn't going to reflect what people do. And what mm-hmm. people do is not going to reflect the people, in the, I mean, the policy. And it's so important that those two come together so that you actually have a good um, first line of defense. You know, it's so funny because when you were talking about your initial <laughs> discussion about teaching in Dubai and about how students that, you know, the age, you know, in their early 20s, they don't want to know the theory. They want to know more about the how. And I thought, mm-hmm. Barbara's cupcake exercise really is a great example of that. <laughs> <laughs> she knows I'm a huge fan of it. I love it. I told her she should copyright it and then sell it as a curriculum because it, it's just such, it's so important that you know, not only compliance understand what, what our, our, you know, clients internally do, Mm -hmm. but they understand what we do and what we care about. You know, I make this joke all the time. I'm not even sure my husband knows what I do. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) if if you talk and we live in the same house and so if my husband doesn't know what I do (laughs) and I talk about it all the time, then how does, you know, the other people within your business actually know what you do and care about. And yeah. so there is some learning there that, that can help us all get to the same page that actually has an impact on both culture and conduct. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking that kind of exercise, that that cupcake one, that would probably be worthwhile for companies to try as well from the reverse angle. So how many times do we as compliance think about an initiative, think really hard on pragmatics um, and, and logistics for rolling it out. And we don't even talk to the business, right? The ones who are going to be uh, dealing with this. And so I'd be interested to see if we replicated the experiment with compliance officers um, <laughs> and having the business decorate the cupcakes, um, how many compliance people, um, hopefully it would be more than the students, hopefully that bit of life experience <laughs> and work experience has pushed them along. But I do think it would be a really... Uh, interesting one and maybe we can think about a way to to do an event to see what happens there and and, you know I'm all about the collaborative compliance Mm -hmm. um, approach Mm -hmm. you know so say you do draft a new policy like Mm -hmm. have a focus group about that policy Mm -hmm. you know send it out get comments as a business because it doesn't make sense to to roll something out to mandate to require something that number one doesn't make business sense and, and it, it doesn't actually speak to the risks that are presented in the business. You know, we had in, in my class when I was teaching, we talked about sort of the, the dilemma of Starbucks with their cups and the plastic lining that's in the middle that often present, uh, prevents a lot of coffee cups mm-hmm. from being um, recycled. And mm-hmm. so the, the problem was presented to the students and say, well, what should they do? And people were like, well, build this big, you know, recycling plant that separates the plastic from the paper. And it was like, and how much would that cost? And mm-hmm. where would you put it? And how would you get the cups there? And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it made sense from a compliance perspective and an mm-hmm. environmental impact perspective. But from a business perspective, it wasn't feasible, scalable, or, you know, probably worth the coins that you would spend on it. And so when we, we have to ebb and flow... Um, to find those solutions. And mm. Starbucks instead, you know, has the reusable cup that then mm. gives a discount um, mm-hmm. for that. And so that was their solution. So mm-hmm. It was good to discuss, but to have them begin to think through how you have to merge compliance with business in a way that makes sense for both. 
Totally. That sounds um, very reasonable. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you taught on that point because it, it's not easy. If it were as easy as us bossing everyone, you know, around and just saying no all the time, you know, you could, you could, you could pay anyone to, to do that. So it's and no not one, that easy. And no one, no one would want to have lunch with us, Mary. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, have, we want friends too. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think that's, <laughs> uh, I, uh, kudos to everyone who's befriended a compliance officer in the office. <laughs> I, I always say in my training, I know you don't want to see me coming down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, but that's why we, we don't want to be seen as every time we come down the hall, we're just reprimanding or, mm-hmm. you know, someone's in trouble. Like mm-hmm. when we're partners and us coming down the hall to visit you isn't, shouldn't be such a scary thing because we have, partnered with you proactively not just mm-hmm. reactively yeah that's one of my big arguments for compliance week compliance week has detractors um, in terms of some people thinking compliance fairs are a bit lame and shouldn't happen um, I'm a really big fan of them and I think one of the easiest reasons for justifying a compliance week is that it is one dedicated event where you are not investigating someone and you're not pushing them through a training that you know they they may not want to to be in and maybe that's partly on me if I I didn't make it engaging enough but um, compliance week is a fantastic opportunity for people to put you know positive correlations between the compliance officer and a totally human experience. Yep I agree and and you know what's interesting as you talk about that now I'm thinking, like, how does that happen virtually, right? <laughs> like, oh my, so how, yeah. how do you keep that momentum up now that we're in such a virtual world and, you know, what compliance weeks or integrity weeks look like now that we're here? And that's, that is going to be a big challenge, but, but doable, yeah. right? Yeah, we're moving ours virtually this year. And, and an interesting thing is that that kind of opens up um, timing. So um, based in Boston, which is where our North America headquarters is, we aim for the um, spring and autumn seasons because it's not so sweaty um, or snowy, um, (laughs) you know, for people to to feel comfortable going outside. And now uh, we have a little more scope um, because it's virtual. So I'm going to look at that silver lining of um, how a virtual one could, in fact, um, make life a little easier for, for those planning them. Yes. Let, let me know what let me know what you end up doing that's I mean it's great I think the we'll most do. important th- most important thing is that we do it still right and yeah and we can't underestimate the impact that it still can have absolutely well, that's all the time that we have today Asha thank you so much for joining us it was um, a pleasure to have you on the show oh wonderful thank you for having me and I look forward to continuing this conversation absolutely Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.